Good morning, everybody. How is everyone? Good, good. Love, love, love being able to celebrate with our families and the newest members of the Alpine family. Thank you so much for sharing your kids with us and giving us the opportunity to partner with you guys. Uh, My name is Alex Geller. I'm one of the staff pastors here at Alpine and so excited that you're here with us this weekend. Uh, If you've been tracking with us for the past couple weeks, we are in the middle of a message series called Goliath Must Fall. And what we've been doing over the past few weeks is we're talking about these five global giants of injustice. These are forms of injustice that exist wherever you go in the world, be it local or abroad. Five forms of injustice that keep people from experiencing life the way that God designed it to be experienced. And when we talk about justice in injustice, we're not talking about justice in the form of like legal justice or courtroom type justice, but we're talking about justice the way that the Bible talks about it, which is the world just as God designed it to be. God designed this world to be a place of goodness and flourishing where people work together and help each other and advance God's causes in the world. And anything that doesn't look like that is injustice. It's anti-justice. It's the opposite of justice. And God has invited us to join his fight against the injustices in our world so that people can experience life the way that he designed it to be experienced. So Dave kicked off the conversation by addressing the global giant of spiritual emptiness. Because we have a broken relationship with God, we have a broken identity, and there's something missing in the human makeup that we try to fill with all of these other things, but nothing ever satisfies and actually brings us to the place that God designed us to be. And so we enter into a relationship with Jesus, and what he does is fill those deep places of our heart and allows us to overflow into the lives of others and to bring the fight against the injustice of spiritual emptiness because we have been filled. We moved on to talk about a two-part conversation about oppression, And how when we move into this world, what we see is people wearing the chains of oppression that wear them down and hold them back. And if we're to join that fight, we have to acknowledge and get rid of our own chains and the things that keep us from pressing into a relationship with God. Because it's only when we have experienced freedom that we're able to offer freedom to other people. If you were here last week, you got to be part of the conversation about the global giant of disease. Uh, Micah Caphart and Spencer Fulmar shared about this disease that racks people both locally and across the world, not just physical disease, but also mental disease. And that disease is driven by despair because people don't have hope. And so we get to do with Jesus, allowing others to experience life with him, and the healing and the resurrection that he offers to everyone who begins a relationship with him. Today, we get to talk about the global giant of injustice called illiteracy. And for many of us, when we hear that word illiteracy, we have a very specific idea of something that comes to mind that looks a little bit like this. Everyone right now is functionally illiterate. When it comes to what's on the screen, right? Illiteracy being the inability to make sense of written language. For many people, we come into an education system and we're able to learn how to read and write. And so when we talk about the injustice of illiteracy in our context, in our culture, it might seem like more of an inconvenience 
or a misfortune, maybe a tragedy, but to talk about illiteracy as an injustice feels like a bit of a stretch. And here's why, because the idea of illiteracy is a lot bigger than we think, and it's a much bigger problem than we realize, but we don't know how big it is because so often we're so far away from it. And giants look really small when you're far away. It's only when you get closer to the issue that you realize how big it really is and how much of a fight there is still to be had against this injustice that we experience both at home and abroad. And so when it comes to bringing the fight to the spiritual giant of injustice called illiteracy, what we need is a broader definition, a deeper understanding, and a greater calling. We need a broader definition of what illiteracy actually means. We need a deeper understanding of how scripture talks about the idea of knowledge, and then we need a greater calling. What do we actually do as a result of all this? And that's kind of our roadmap for this morning. We're going to talk about a broader definition of illiteracy, a deeper understanding of knowledge throughout scripture, and then a greater calling and how we get to join God in what he's doing in the world to fight against this giant. Now, quick note for those of you that are curious, the way that we're going to be approaching scripture today is going to be much more of a theological all of scripture approach than zeroing in on one specific verse or passage or story. We're going to trace a theme that runs throughout the entire library of scripture and what it has to teach for us today, which is in no way intimidating as a communicator. (laughs) So on that note, let's pray together. God, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to be here, to be together, and to be with you. Thank you for everything that you have in store for us in these moments. A lot of us came into this place today with something that was trying to grab our attention away from you. And God, in this moment, we release all of those things to you, every care, every concern, every worry, everything that would steal our attention away from you. We acknowledge it, we confess it, and we let it go. And we ask that you would speak clearly to us in these moments and that you would give us the courage to follow through on absolutely anything and everything that you would call us into from this point forward. We love you, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. So when it comes to the global giant of illiteracy, what we need is a broader definition, a deeper understanding, and a greater calling. When it comes to a broader definition, when we talk about illiteracy, like we already mentioned, something very specific comes to mind, and it's the inability to read and write. And that's a pretty simple definition, but it's a definition that talks about a lack of something. It's more about what you don't have. So what would happen if we defined illiteracy and moved beyond that to literacy? What does literacy mean? There's a very interesting definition that comes to us from the Program for the International Assessment of Adult Competencies which is another way of saying we're really legit and smart, apparently. That's a very intimidating name. But they, they have this definition about illiteracy. Understanding, evaluating, using and engaging with written text. Here's the interesting part. To participate in society, to achieve one's goals, and to develop one's knowledge and potential. The way that this program defines literacy has a little bit less to do with a skill and more to do with what that skill makes possible. To be able to read and write is a way that people 
get to participate in human society, that they get to make a contribution to the world as they pursue the things that they set their minds to in a way that they can actually grow as individuals and members of society. And so with this sort of expanded definition of literacy and having knowledge that allows us to participate in society, we have to start asking the question, what other forms of literacy might be out there? If illiteracy is about this this gap in knowledge that prevents you from being able to participate and contribute and grow, what other forms of illiteracy might exist in the world that prevent people from doing those things? We could talk about things like agricultural illiteracy and places in the world where people don't know how the farming system works and therefore can't build sustainable communities. We can talk about financial illiteracy and not being able to manage cash flow and the ins and outs of budgeting. We can talk about healthcare illiteracy, people not understanding basic nutrition and hygiene and fitness. We can talk about emotional illiteracy in the Northwest suburbs. How do I let my emotions not ruin or run my life? There's even such a thing as sports illiteracy. Now, there's kind of a running joke at the Alpine office these days that Alex doesn't understand sports analogies. That's because Alex is sports illiterate. I lack the knowledge to contribute or participate in the conversation. We were in a meeting the other day and someone was trying to make a point and they started with like, you know, it's just like when the Washington Redskins and I'm pretty sure I blacked out. No clue what this person said, no idea the point they were trying to make, and everybody in the room could tell, and luckily one of our elders, Jeff Wood, was sitting next to me and kind of nudged me and said, Alex, it's just like when Frodo took the ring. (laughs) It's like, my man, he gets me, he's speaking my language. But there's all these different forms of illiteracy that exist in our world that prevent people from being able to participate and contribute and grow as individuals and members of society because they just don't know. And so when it comes to our definition of illiteracy, we need to move beyond just the skill of reading and writing to there being any lack of essential knowledge that keeps people from participating contributing, and growing. Illiteracy is lacking the essential knowledge to participate, contribute, and grow. And so when we look at that definition of illiteracy and that lack of knowledge, that broader definition, we have to take the next step and go to Scripture and say, so what does Scripture have to say about this? What does the Bible have to say about the importance of knowledge and the role that it plays in our lives? And so we need a deeper understanding of how Scripture talks about knowledge. And on page one of the Bible, we see beginning this three-strand cord that runs throughout the entire storyline of the Bible, of these three different forms of knowledge that come together. Knowledge of God, knowledge of self, and knowledge of the world. God creates humanity in his image, He creates them to be co-laborers with him in the world that he is filled with goodness and potential and beauty and the opportunity for them to see it all come to life. He begins this relationship with humanity and establishes a knowledge of who he is. 
which leads them to an understanding of who they are, something we call identity. Because they know who God is, being created in his image, they know who they are. They know their role. They know what they've been called to do. And they know that they've been given the dignity and authority to carry out that role well as God's kids. And knowing who God is and knowing who they are, they're able to move into the world and act in ways that are consistent with who God is and who they are. And they have the privilege of discovering things like agriculture and architecture engineering, art, how to raise a family, how to organize a community in a neighborhood. That was the trajectory that humanity was placed on, was to grow in their knowledge of God and knowledge of self and knowledge of the world and see everything continue to flourish and become more and more beautiful as they worked alongside God until everything went wrong. In Genesis 3, we're introduced to this character called the serpent. In Hebrew, his name is the Satan, Satan, the accuser, one who brings charges against. And the first thing that he does is to bring a charge against the character of God. He comes to the humans and says, did God really say? Is he really good? Does he really have your best interest in mind? And what's introduced into the equation is a distorted view of God's character, a distorted knowledge of God. Humanity begins to think less of God, and so they begin to think more of themselves. A distorted view of God leads to a distorted view of self, and they begin to believe that they can actually become like God. And so based on their distorted knowledge of God and distorted knowledge of self, they take distorted action, and they take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is much less about information and much more of a power play. Because to know good and evil is to be able to define good and evil, which means you get to decide the rules for yourself. And you don't have to listen to God anymore. And so because of that action, that rebellion against God, everything is ruined. They break their relationship with God because they distrusted who he is. Now there is a distrust of one another and a brokenness inside their own hearts, a rebellion that will stick and cannot be resolved And because of that, they begin to take action in the world that isn't about bringing life. It's about bringing death and fighting against one another and trying to make power plays over each other. The whole system falls apart because they distrusted God's character. And the rest of the Old Testament is the story of God dealing with the human problem of the brokenness and rebellion that the scriptures sum up in the word sin. Dealing with that problem in the human heart and in the world by restoring a proper knowledge of himself. God moves into the world and reveals himself to Abraham, to Moses, through the law, through the priesthood, through the judges, through the kings. Nothing sticks. Every move that God makes towards humanity, there's a brief moment where they seem to realize who God is and everything seems to be on track and they're aligned in who God is and who they are and how they need to operate in the world. But those moments quickly fizzle and are few and far between until eventually there's this angst, this expectation, this desire among God's people that one day the knowledge of God will fill the earth like the water fills the oceans. Prophets like Hosea and Malachi ream out the authority figures among God's people for keeping the people spiritually illiterate because they refuse to teach them about who God is. They refuse to share the knowledge of God and perpetuate this system of brokenness. Later prophets like Isaiah and Habakkuk 
pick up this language of looking into the future to this time when God's promised rescuer would come and restore things to the way that they always were designed to be. Isaiah puts it this way in Isaiah eleven nine. Speaking of the time when the Messiah would come back and restore peace on earth, he says, They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk takes up the same idea, but directs his attention towards the perpetrators of injustice. And he says, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, worthless, and that the nations will exhaust themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This prophetic expectation and anticipation of God's revealing himself leads to 400 years of silence where there is no revelation of God, where God doesn't speak and the people are wondering, has he finally given up on us? And into this moment in history steps Jesus of Nazareth, who comes claiming to be one who is the exact representation of God's character and the fulfillment of all of his promises. And he doesn't just claim to be one with the Father, he claims to be one of us. He shows us who God is and he tells us this is who you were created to be. This is what it means to be actually, truly, fully human. And then he shows his followers how to live and move and make their way in the world. Something that he calls and refers to as the kingdom of God. But Jesus just didn't come with information about who God is and who we were supposed to be and how to make our way in the world. He comes with transformation. And that brokenness and that rebellion that scripture talks about as sin, Jesus takes that on himself and puts it to death by dying on the cross and doesn't just stay dead, but breaks through death into new life to offer a new relationship with God, a new identity and a new way of being in the world by the Holy Spirit. Jesus steps out of the grave with that offer of restored life, restored knowledge of God and knowledge of self and knowledge of how to make our way in the world. And that idea of knowledge becomes so baked into the early fabric of the church that later authors like Paul and Peter pick up on the language of the knowledge of God because it's so important. Paul writes, in Ephesians 1, 16 to 17, I've not stopped thanking God for you, and I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. In his book to the Colossians, Paul says, we've not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. Paul prays a lot, apparently. And he says, we ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding because he knew and believed the importance of knowing God for everything else that followed. And Peter brings these three strands of knowledge back together, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of self, and the knowledge of how to make your way in the world when he writes these words in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. He says, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We've received all this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. 
These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature, a way of talking about our restored identity, and to escape the world's corruption caused by human desires, sin. In view of all of this, make every effort, how you act in the world, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence. Moral excellence with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with patient endurance, patient endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with a love for everyone. And the more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind, spiritually illiterate, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. This three-strand chord that begins in Genesis 1 about knowing God and knowing ourselves and knowing how to make our way in the world finds its way to Jesus, who invites us into that new relationship with God and that restored identity and a new way of being in the world, the kingdom of God. And this is a deeper understanding of how knowledge is talked about in Scripture. And so when we go with this broader definition of illiteracy and have this deeper knowledge, we realize that we have a greater calling than we thought. And illiteracy isn't just about teaching people how to, write, how to read and write. That's part of it. But that skill-based literacy is just one component. There's self-literacy and learning about who you are and discovering your identity, not just as a human, but as a person and as an individual. But neither of these forms of knowledge are a supplement for the knowledge of God. The three fronts of the battle against the injustice of illiteracy are helping people know who God is, helping them know who they are, and then discovering the skills to participate and contribute in the world. But the focusing lens for all three of those is the knowledge of God. In fact, to help people become more self-aware, which is a very, it's kind of a buzzword in our culture today, self-awareness without a knowledge of God just makes you more selfish. Being aware of the world and how to make your way in the world without a knowledge of God just makes you more worldly and wraps you up in the stuff of the world. But the knowledge of God is the starting point, the unique responsibility we get to share as followers of Jesus to help people discover who he is, which leads them to knowing who they are, which directs all of their activity in the world. And so as a church, if you've been tracking with our conversations at all over the past few years, this is what we've been hammering home week after week after week is helping people know who God is. Spiritual literacy is the front that we fight on with every song, with every conversation, with every sermon series, with every message. We are helping people discover or recover a correct perspective and knowledge of God because there are a lot of distorted views out there. And we go to Jesus, we go to scripture, and we bring that knowledge forward to say, this is who God is. And if you were here last week, Spencer shared something very profound. He said, the greatest injustice for us as a church would be to keep that knowledge for ourselves and not share it with others. Because in a sense, we're encouraging spiritual illiteracy when we don't step into the fray and say, this is who God is. With our words, with our actions, with our attitudes, with the way that we operate, we have the opportunity to show people who God is. 
And so as a church, we are committed to continue fighting on this front because that's what God is doing in the world. He's revealing himself to the world and showing people who he is, and we want to be part of that. But along with spiritual illiteracy, we fight against self-illiteracy. If spiritual literacy is concerned with the question, who is God, self-illiteracy is concerned with the question, who am I? Not just as a human, but as a person. And there's a way of looking at self-literacy that really just hones you in on yourself and makes you more self-focused. But there's a way of looking at self-literacy as becoming fluent in your own beauty and brokenness so that you can bring that knowledge to God and he can make you more like Jesus. Being able to go to those deep places in your own heart and say, God, this is who I am gives God the opportunity to work with you and to shape you into the person that he always created you to be, which looks an awful lot like Jesus. And there's an opportunity coming up here at Alpine for anyone who's interested to kind of start that journey. It was about a year ago now that as a staff, we encountered this tool called the Enneagram. How many of you have heard of the Enneagram before? Okay, okay, several of you. It's kind of gaining some traction uh, in popular culture at large, but it's basically a personality typing system that helps you discover in a very unique way those beautiful and broken places in your own heart so that we have the opportunity as followers of Jesus to bring that to God and ask him to shape us to become more like Jesus. In the first uh, four Sundays in November, uh, Sunday evenings, we're going to be hosting a workshop on the Enneagram called Exploring the Enneagram. We're going to look at the system, what it means for you, how it can be used for spiritual growth, and then how it impacts your relationships. If you're interested in participating in that workshop, go ahead and take out your phones, and you can text the word Enneagram to 9... I'm I'm kidding. Don't text the word Enneagram. (laughs) Your autocorrects will do all sorts of strange things with that. No, text the word workshop to 97000. You'll get back some information about how to register and what uh, steps you can take from there. The Enneagram is a very helpful tool. It's not Jesus. It's not the gospel. It won't save your soul or your marriage or your job, but it brings you to the point of self-awareness to say, God, this is who I am in all of my beauty and brokenness. And I want you to make me more like Jesus because there's no one more beautiful than him. So if you're interested in that text workshop to 9-7,000, you can follow through with the steps from there. So as a church, we're combating spiritual illiteracy. We're combating self-illiteracy. And there is a role to be played in the fight against skill illiteracy. Because once people discover who God is and who they are, to be generous and to move into the world in a way that you get to participate and make a contribution and grow as an individual requires some practical skill. And there is no more powerful skill to give people that unlocks an entire world of opportunity for them than the ability to read and write. We're coming full circle now. In fact, skill-based illiteracy is one of the biggest drivers of self-illiteracy and spiritual illiteracy. Towards the beginning of our conversation, we put a slide up that looked like this. Looks like gibberish to us, right? It's Haitian Creole. And when you translate this into English, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting 
life. There are kids in Haiti who will never be able to read these words in their own language and can make about as much sense of it as we can. Not because the scriptures are unavailable to them. The scriptures are there, but they don't have someone to teach them. To teach them this fundamental skill that unlocks an entire world for them to be able to grow and learn about who God is through scripture. We have a really unique opportunity as a church to partner with some of the churches and the schools that we've been a part of in Haiti over these past few years. Dave's going to come up in a couple minutes and share about that. But when it comes to the skill-based illiteracy, there is a role for us to play in helping people learn the skills that they can use and contribute to the world so that they can be a part of what God is doing. It's not a substitute for knowing who God is. Knowing who God is is the place where we start, but it's not the place where we stop. And we're able to help people grow in their knowledge of God and grow in their knowledge of self and grow in their knowledge of the world so that they can live in the world just as God intended it to be. And so as we wrap things up this morning, this broader definition of illiteracy leads us to pursue a deeper understanding of knowledge and reminds us that we have a greater calling in this world, that we get to share the knowledge of God with others. And oftentimes we'll do that by helping people discover who they are and maybe even learn a skill that they can use to contribute in the world. So two questions I want to leave you with. The first one being this. We've talked about illiteracy as being this gap, this knowledge gap between being able to participate and not. And so the question I would ask you is what gaps exist in your life? What gaps do you have? Is there a gap in your knowledge of God, a gap in your knowledge of yourself, or a gap in a skill that you could use to participate in the world and make a positive contribution? What gaps do you have and what gaps can you fill? Each and every one of us knows something and has been given by God something that we get to offer to others so that they can grow and experience the world just as God intended it to be. Do you know what that is? Your response to these two questions, where are your gaps? And what gaps can you fill become weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left that you get to bring to the battle against the injustice of illiteracy, both here and abroad. We've been given the privilege of joining what God is doing in the world. And so we're going to take the fight and we're going to step into this battle. This giant may be bigger than we thought, but it's not too big for God. And so we're going to jump in and give it everything we have. All right, I'm going to pray for us, and then Dave is going to step on stage. God, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to be here. Thank you that you did not leave us in the mess of our own choices, but you stepped in to remind us of who you are and to remind us of who we are. And because of that, we sit in this room and talk about your goodness and your grace and everything that Jesus has done. And we ask that you would help us know how we can join the fight to help others know who you are, know who they are, and how they can be part of what you're doing in this world. We love you. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. 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 Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Alex. Well, here's the deal. We hope that through this, we're a little bit more aware. And as a church, we are committed um, deeply to fighting the giants of injustice. And here's why, because we know behind the giants of injustice are people that are lacking justice. It's not just what we fight against, but who we fight for. 
And you may be sitting here and you may be saying, I got, a, I got enough things going on in my life. I don't need to be fighting for somebody else. That might be the reason you need to fight for somebody else. Because we, we've been told by God, promised, that if we would seek first the kingdom, who he is, who I am in that kingdom, and the call he's placed on my life and our life, that he will take care of everything else. Wouldn't you rather God take care of your stuff? How many of you are doing a kind of a really bad job taking care of your own stuff sometimes? So God comes in and says, I can do that. And we want him to be able to do that. And so we're leaning into this conversation. And I would challenge you to do this. You don't have to. There's never a demand here. But I would challenge you this week to listen to that message again. Because for whatever reason, the enemy of our soul does not want us to hear this. This sets the whole thing right if you get this. If you're literate in who God is, who you are, and God's plan for you in this world. One way we're practically going to apply that, that you have an opportunity to jump into. If you're visiting with us today, you don't have to jump into this unless you want to. But we've been in a relationship for the past five years with two communities in Haiti, Coladere and Bagana Bay in the Central Plateau, where people live on less than a dollar a day and education doesn't happen for most. And in both of those communities, we built two churches and we believe that in about three years, sustainability would happen for those villages. Well, it's called the sustainability myth. It didn't. But what did happen was two schools were birthed in those churches to reach those communities. Isn't it great that the churches in the communities are the ones offering the schools so that they not only learn to read and write, but they learn to read and write about God, right? And many of you know that last year, the teachers weren't paid for a year because the sustainability didn't work, but they continued to teach the whole year without being paid. Most of us, if we don't get paid in a week, we're out. They teach the whole year because they believe in these kids and the opportunity for them to learn and grow. So we've come up with a solution that will help them accomplish sustainability to be able to raise funds on their own, but they're going to need some help. And so we are going to fund their first two years in both schools of paying the teachers and the supplies that are needed to run the schools. That totals $26,000. Yeah, God is going to do it. We were able to catch the teachers up. Your generosity as a church, we were able to send the money over there and they were paid in full. They're caught up and we're going to take the first 13000 for this year, the next 13000 for next year, and then we're going to get two Toyota trucks. They're going to cost $10,000 a piece. And you say, why aren't we getting them Toyota trucks? Here's why. Because in Haiti, you take a Toyota truck that we will ship and you turn it into a tap-tap. A tap-tap is a taxi. The church will then, the school will hire somebody, create a job to drive the tap-tap from the towns that the schools are in to Capetian, Port-au-Prince, and in doing so, they'll make about $700 a week. They will take that money, put money aside for a new tap-tap when that one breaks down to cover maintenance, to cover gas, to pay the driver and have enough money left over to pay the teachers and the supplies for the whole year. Isn't that awesome? I'm going to invite the ushers forward. And here, here's what we're going to do. We're just believing that God is prompting our hearts. We, be, we don't believe in just random acts of giving. We believe in hearts of generosity. That what comes to us isn't all for us. That's greed. But what comes to us, God is calling us to use for the kingdom. This is the kingdom. This is our way to get involved and put our hearts where we want them to be.
And so if you're here and you're saying, man, I wasn't ready to do something like this, but I want to be part of that, you can go to aclz.org backslash give, and there's a, a place for Haiti. There's a Haiti option that you can give to. And we're just believing that God's going to cover this. We're going to be able to send the money over to Hope City Hench, and they're going to pay the teachers. So it's going to look like it's coming from within country, not outside. Then we don't create a habit of everybody thinking that we're taking care of them. We just get to be part of what God is doing completely unseen. That means we get to maximize relationship. And that's what we'll do. So God, I pray in these moments. I pray for our friends and family in Haiti. Um, We've seen these little kids. We've hugged their necks. We've talked with them. We've played with them. We've laughed and we've cried. And God, it's an injustice for them to go without knowledge. And yet the church has stepped forward and said, we will be that light in this community and we want to help, Father. We have been resourced in so many ways. And so God, as we have stepped in relationally and we've stepped in prayerfully, we step in financially. And as we sit in this room and if you're moving our hearts, we want to obey. And we pray, God, that you would take every bit of this resource and use it for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Ushers, you can pass. One more thing before you go. I want to say thank you to everybody that showed up to the movie last Sunday that we talked about. We had over 150 people at the Catlow and Barrington to watch the movie Shooting Heroin and gain greater awareness on the opiate crisis, but also begin to understand that there is disease in this world that God is calling us to step into and be in proximity. We also shared with you that The Lake Zurich Police Department is a way out station. That means any addict can show up at the Lake Zurich Police Department and simply say, I want out, turn in their drugs, they won't be arrested, and the police department finds and places them in inpatient treatment. But they need people that will sit with them while they're waiting for that process. Over 48 people from three services signed up to be an angel that will come and sit with people in proximity. Isn't that awesome? Huge. So I want to say thank you. If you're looking for a church that's safe and you're just going to get your ears tickled and it's comfortable, then this just might not be that church. Amen. It's going to get messy. We're going to be called to do the uncomfortable. It won't be safe and there may be some insecurity, but thank God our security rests in Jesus and not the world. And so with that, may we go and be who Jesus has called us to be in this world. May we know God. May we discover who we are in God. And may we use everything he's given us for the world would know. Have a great week. We love y'all.